Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. All right. So, um, we're starting our 14-class structured study of wise restraint that leads into our wise restraint foundations of the Buddha's Dhamma retreat. Um, it's not a prerequisite for the retreat, but a good lead-in. And so, um, wise restraint is the, the is Dhamma practice at the point of contact. It is the experience of the limiting factor, factors of the Eightfold Path. It's the, we're, what we're restraining in this moment through wisdom, through understanding, is the continuation of eye-making uh, and the establishment of dukkha in my uh, human life experience. So wise restraint can be seen as the stepping stone to full human maturity, as opposed to... Uh, constantly grasping after uh, the things we think we need to be happy and safe and secure and known in the world, uh, established in the world in a certain way and in a certain class. Uh, uh, this is the, uh, it is wise restraint that brings common peace in this present moment. Because if, if my mind is grasping after anything, wanting this moment to be different or more, uh, I've literally lost my mind in relation to the Dhamma, and there's no restraint. It's just grasping after. But in this moment, if I can recognize what I truly am, and that's what this, this sutta is, uh, then there, it, it would be foolish for a human being that understands who they truly are to continue eye-making. But that's the, that's the whole secret, isn't it? To understand who we truly are. And so I taught this sutta recently at our... Uh, Jhana structured study because it relates perfectly to that, uh, to deepening concentration. Um, so now it's leading off our wise restraint practice because this is what we are. This is the Buddha's teaching to um, a, a, a Dharma practitioner that didn't, from the Buddha to a Dharma practitioner, that Dharma practitioner didn't know who he, who he was talking to. He thought he was just another wanderer. And so the Buddha realized this opportunity he had uh, to give Pukasati this a most profound lesson, what he most needed to learn. And what he taught him was what it means to be a human being. All He taught Pukasati what a human being can only be. He taught Pukasati the limits of what it means to be a human being. And in so doing, in, in that understanding, Pukasati realized true freedom, true liberation, and we will now. Because if we realize who and what we are can never be added to or adapted to, it, it's just the vehicle from birth to death that we experience, then there is no reason for eye-making. Then the real reason for living would be to protect the quality of mind of that being, wouldn't it? If there's nothing else to gain except understanding. On one occasion, the Buddha was wandering among the Magadans. He entered Rajagaha and went to the potter Bhagava. He asked Bhagava, If it is no inconvenience for you, friend, I will stay for one night in your shed. 
Bhagavā answered, It is no inconvenience for me, but the wanderer Pukasati has already taken up residence there. If he gives his, his permission, you may stay there as you like. Pukasati was a fellow Sakyan and had gone forth into homelessness and was developing the Buddha's Dhamma. The Buddha approached Pukasati and asked him if he could stay one night in his shed. Pukasati replied, The shed is roomy, my friend, stay as you like. The Buddha entered the shed and sat on a pile of leaves and grass. Folding his legs crosswise and holding his body erect, he set mindfulness to the fore. Huh, I got F-O-U-R, it's not that. Mindfulness to the fore and began jhana. Pukasati joined him in meditation for most of the evening. The Buddha had the thought, how inspiring Pukasati behaves. Let me question him on his understanding. Venerable Pukasati, out of dedication, to whom have you gone forth? Who is your teacher and whose Dhamma do you, are you practicing? So you can see the playfulness of Siddhartha, young Siddhartha here. My, wait, another typo I'm seeing, I guess. My, my teacher. My teacher is Gautama the Contemplative, a Sakin son. He is known far and wide as a Buddha, a rightly self-awakened one who is consummate in clear knowing and of pure con- conduct. He is an expert of worldly affairs and the unsurpassed teacher of those fit to be taught. I have gone forth with dedication to him as my teacher, and it is his Dhamma that I am practicing. Friend Pukasati, Siddhartha asked, where is the Buddha staying now? Wanderer, I have heard that the Buddha is in Savati. Then Siddhartha asked, have you met the Buddha? Would you recognize him? No, I have never met the Buddha and I would not recognize him. So the Buddha knows he's got him right where he wants him. The Buddha understood Pukasati's devotion. Without identifying himself, he said to Pukasati, I will teach you the Dhamma, friend. Listen and pay close attention as I speak. So Pukasati is expecting something that is probably going to contradict what he's learned so far. And the Buddha says, a person has six properties, six media of sensory conduct leading to 18 distinct considerations. Sounds like an awful lot of information, doesn't it? But it's not. Furthermore, a well-focused Dhamma practitioner establishes four wise determinations. Having established these four wise determinations, this one has still the, the distraction of fabrication, I'm sorry, of fabricated speculation and supposition. When the distraction of fabricated speculation and supposition has stilled, this one is said to be a sage of peace. So speculated, um, fabricated speculation and supposition is just ongoing eye-making. What can I be in this moment? What do I need? How can I enhance myself? How can I be more of this and more of that? How can I have more of this or have more of that? One, the Buddhist teaching, one who has stilled that is said to be a sage of peace. Again, he's, he's teaching Pukasati directly. This is why you're practicing. And he says to Pukasati, a well-focused Dhamma practitioner should not neglect wise discernment, should always guard the truth, should always be devoted to unbinding, and train their minds only for calm. So again, the Buddha is getting into the limiting aspect of the Dhamma rather than go here, go there. You can, you can gain this knowledge and gain this experience. He's immediately telling Pukasati, calm down, quiet your mind, let go of things. Is that Mary that just joined us? Hello, Mary. Hi. And then the Buddha says, this is my summary and analysis of these six properties. 
And again, the Buddha is going to describe what, what every human being is made of, beginning with the, the four elements. Of course, we all under, understand we're made up of the same elements that the universe is made up of in a different configuration than a tree or a car or a mountain or a star. We're made up of the earth property, the liquid property, the fire property, the wind property, the space property, something that people tend to ignore, and the consciousness property. It's interesting that the Buddha teaches a consciousness as a property or an aspect of a human being. So it's nothing, uh, it's nothing, there's nothing cosmic about this consciousness property. It's another, excuse me. The consciousness property is just another ordinary property. And again, the, the importance of that teaching in this context is there's nothing special about it. Stop treating it as in, in, that, in, a, uh, in a way that is lived only for intellectual satisfaction. Then he says, he concludes that a person has these six properties. Furthermore, a person has six, uh, six media of sensory conduct, the sixth sense base, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the intellect. This is how we interact with the world. This is how we learn about ourselves in relation to the world. A person has these six media of sensory contact. Furthermore, a person has 18 considerations. This is what we consider. On seeing form with the eye, one considers form as a basis for joy, or form as a basis for disappointment, or form as a basis for equanimity. The first two are rooted in ignorance, the last is rooted in understanding. So my form can be the basis for continued grasping after joyful experiences more, or I can live my life to avoid any disappointment. There can only be eye-making in grasping after joy or avoiding disappointment. Or there can simply be equanimity. How can a mind rest in equanimity, a calm and balanced mind? Only through understanding, through the cessation of eye-making. And the Buddha applies that to the other senses. On hearing Hearing a sound with the ear, one considers sound as a basis for joy or disappointment or for equanimity. So we can use our senses for continued distraction, continued dukkha, or we can use our senses appropriately. Again, the important point is there that the senses aren't bad. They're not wrong. It's not... Um, remember, the Buddhists uh, engage in many, many severe ascetic practices, Denying the idea then and today is that if you can just deny the senses enough through silence, through, through uh, 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 food deprivation, sleep deprivation, clothes deprivation, meaning you're not even concerned about living in the, in, within the elements, that somehow by denying your humanity, you'll understand your humanity. Or, or really they, that's taught that if you can be so ascetic that you can free your mind from your body. That, and that is the literal thinking. That, and that, so the, the implication is that we should want to free our mind from our body. That the form is the vehicle for pain and suffering. But if I can free my mind from my body in a non-physical establishment, I will have resolved the issue of stress and suffering. Of course that's rooted in ignorance. A human being without a mind is not a human being. It's just a lump of flesh and bone, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But a human being, being in control of their mind, is an awake, fully mature human being that can have now have a human life. Period. And so, once that human life begins, it begins as a six-property person. And over the course of a lifetime, that person evolves and learns more about this and that, and acquires things. 
And when they die, they're a six-property person. Nothing has changed. Except the life experience from birth to death. And that experience of our life is up to us. Or maybe I should say it this way. The quality of that life experience is up to me. It's up to the individual. But only if I understand that I have the choice of what I'm, how I'm going to experience this moment. Is it going to be as a six-property person with full awareness of what that means, meaning full human maturity? Or am I going to continue to experience life as a childish, immature six-property person that is always wanting more or always wanting less because of my delusion? On smelling an aroma with a nose, one considers aroma as a basis for joy or disappointment or equanimity. On hearing a sound with the ear, one considers sound as a basis for joy, for disappointment or equanimity. On tasting flavors with the tongue, etc. On feeling a tactile sensation with the body, etc. And there's another mis- misspelling there. What would that word be? I don't want to ask anybody to tell me what it is because it's not a pleasant word. I can't even think what the word might be. Do you, you see my, my, my issue? Wait, no, because I, I, I'm, I'm reading... I wonder if this is this translation. Here, read, read the next one. Yeah. <laughs> this is full I'm of... cognizing. Yes. <clears throat> Boy. <laughs> I have a... Good thing that... Does anybody happen. else have this? I don't know where this came from, because no, I have... No, yours is different than the one I'm reading in the newsletter. That's good, because yeah. I have, on an erection... I mean, literally, that's what it says. I'm not going to say what the words actually are. That's what it's implying. But on cognizing an idea with the intellect, one considers the idea as a basis for joy or the idea as a basis for disappointment or the idea as a basis for equanimity. Did you speak that in at some point? No, it must have been an autocorrection. Of course, I wouldn't say on... Yeah, I, I understand. Yeah, it was no, an no. autocorrection somewhere, but it's not in the other one, so I don't even know how it's in this one. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the previous two where you said there, this is not right, uh, that didn't show up on my printed copy either. Yeah, strange. Anyway, okay. So the Buddha says, these are the six con- considerations mm-hmm. that are conducive to joy, six considerations that are conducive to disappointment, and six considerations that are conducive to equanimity towards awakening. So the same human internal process that distracts us from actually awakening, developing full human maturity, and being present for our moment-by-moment life is the same vehicle, the same sixth sense base that leads to awakening, depending on what we do with them. And that's our choice. So on seeing form with the eye, I can see that form either from a self-referential standpoint, I want more, or I can see it from an understanding that as I look out on the world, I understand the world because I've been able to understand what's going on within me through the sixth sense base. So now I'm using my six senses to interpret reality rather than continued fabricated speculation and supposition. Is that clear to, to everyone? Yeah. And so the same is true for every one of my senses. And so now my senses become the vehicle for my own awakening. Furthermore, a person has four determinations. This is what we determined from those, consider- those things that we're considering. The determination for discernment. In this moment, am I determined to understand, to discern clearly, to have wisdom? 
In this moment, is there a determination for the truth? In this moment, is there a determination to relinquish views rooted in ignorance? In this moment, within me, is there a determination for calm? And notice that none of these determinations can be applied externally. As we apply the Dhamma correctly, we cease being saviors. And salvation ceases to be the purpose of our Dhamma practice. Except you could say maybe to save our own. Can't, we're not, not to save our own soul, because we don't have one. But to save our own human life is okay. We can look at it that way. Because this is my life that I'm saving for myself. There's no salvation in that, though. A person has these four considerations, these four determinations. The Buddha continues, A Dhamma practitioner should not neglect discernment, should guard the truth, the four noble truths, always be devoted to relinquishment, and train only for calm. That's all we're doing. If, I'm tra- if I find myself training for anything else, including some speculated and supposed future non-physical or physical establishment, if I, if I meditate long and hard enough, somehow I'll awaken in this lifetime, or if I do all these right things and bow uh, you know, a thousand times, in another life, I'll escape the suffering of this life and get my reward there. We trade only for calm. Only for calm is right here and right now. And, God, that's so mad. I got double ands there. And how does one not neglect discernment? Do you have the double and to begin anybody? I don't know where I got this corrupted copy. And how does one not neglect discernment? So again, telling Pukasati and us from 2,600 years ago, right to the point. How does one not neglect discernment? Through mindfulness of these six properties. Meaning holding in mind that this is what I am. Through mindfulness of the six properties. Earth, wind, fire, water, space, and consciousness. That's what I am and that's what I'll always be. And that's all I can ever be. But within that, I can have an extraordinary human life because I'll be present for it. And what is the earth property? The earth property can be internal or external. The internal earth property is anything within oneself that is hard, solid, and sustained by craving. Head, hair, body, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, tendons, bones, marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, membranes, spleen, lungs, intestines, contents of the stomach, feces, and anything else internal within oneself that's hard, solid, and sustained by craving. This is called the internal earth property. Now, both the internal earth property and the external earth property are simply earth property. So the Buddha is reflecting on you can establish that, that earth property right here within your body, but you can also establish the earth property in some other physical property, meaning in the next physical moment or some, somehow a non-physical life. doesn't make sense, but that's what the Buddha is referring to because just as today people are confused about an, a, 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 a heavenly-like next life as a reward for this life. This is called the internal earth property. Now, both internal earth property and external external earth property are simply earth property. Skipping over some commentary. This is how the earth property should be seen by anyone with discernment. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. This is not myself. Always. And this is what brings calm. 
So anytime we're identifying ourselves or trying to establish that self-identification in some other realm, but it's still the earth property, I'm still seeing the physical form there, we remind ourselves, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. Anytime we do it. Anytime we're trying to establish ourselves in a better moment, we've lost our mind. Reclaim your mind, remind yourself, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. Because this moment is the moment I'm alive. Not the last moment and not the next moment. Right here, right now. When one sees this as it has come to be with right discernment, okay, there's some, there could be such a thing as wrong discernment, understanding things in an improper, non-domic way. When one sees this as it has come to be with right discernment, one becomes disenchanted with the earth property, and through lack of sustenance, the earth property fades from mind. So what would sustain earth property as a Dharma practitioner? Re-examining it and questioning it or analyzing it or finding any value in the earth property other than just what it is a dispassionate, impersonal part of human life. And through that lack of sustenance, what is the sustenance? The the sustenance to maintain that view is obviously ignorance. So ignorance is the fertilizer. Remember the Bhava Sutta. And what is the liquid property? The liquid property can be internal or external. The liquid property is anything belonging to oneself that is liquid, watery, and sustained by craving. And the Buddha gives a long uh, list of that. Anything that is within oneself that is liquid, watery, and sustained by craving. Again, what, what does it mean sustained by craving? I'm not keeping my physical life going by craving. I'm not keeping those, the, the, the systems that the Buddha is discussing. All of these, the, the, the internal solid property and internal liquid property is simply a consequence of having, being a six-property person. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about applying an ignorant view to these properties and and doing it constantly and making something special out of these ordinary properties. These properties are just human properties. And some of these properties change. Some of these internal properties that are all part of the six-property person can sometimes of themselves lead to stress and suffering. Now I'm talking about physical or mental illness. And so how do I see that when it arises, when I got a tummy ache? Or I have an appendectomy. I don't know why I'm talking about that. My tummy's fine today. (laughs) In either instance, I don't take it personally. I understand that as a consequence of having this wonderful human life, this wonderful human life that I can experience through understanding in this moment, I might get appendicitis or have a tummy ache. That goes with the, it goes with the package, doesn't it? It's part of the six-property person. I'm not doing anything to generate this disease in myself. But I have to accept it. Why? Because it's happening. And certainly I don't approve of it. I don't say, okay, I think I got an, I'm having appendicitis. Isn't this wonderful? Let me go sit and meditate on it. No, I'm going to call 911 and get it taken care of. Because I'm thinking clearly. But I'm also not taking it personally that the the ambulance is taking too long or I don't like the doctor or whatever else might be going on that, that that would distract me from this most unpleasant moment that is made pleasant by my being at peace with it.
There's no internal conflict. I'm not at war with myself. I can have a nice, pleasant appendicitis attack <laughs> and get on with my life. I hope that was a good metaphor. Now, both the internal and external liquid property are simply liquid property. The earth property, the form, is simply the form property. It's nothing extraordinary. The things in this property that keep me animated and alive are nothing special. They're just part of the property of the earth. And it's the same liquid property that's within me that's flowing in the Delaware River or is making up the clouds that bring us rain, that, that, that give us food. It's the same aspect of human life. And none of it is to be taken personal. If I can understand it within myself, then I can certainly understand it out in the world. I don't need the world to be any different. This is how the liquid property should be seen by one with right discernment. This is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am, this is not myself. When one sees this as it has come to be with right discernment, one becomes disenchanted with the liquid property. And through lack of sustenance, the liquid property fades from mind. So it's no longer an issue. Excuse me. Notice the Buddha doesn't say, through lack of sustenance, the liquid property is gone. Through lack of sustenance, through ignorance, the liquid property is no longer an issue. It's not taken personal. How could it be an issue if I'm not identifying with it? With it, And what is the fire property? The fire property can be internal or external. Again, we can, we can speculate on any of these elements and suppose them into something other than what they are. The internal property is anything belonging to oneself that is fire, fiery, and sustained by craving. The internal fire property is that within which the body is warmed, ages, consumed, consumed by fever, that which is eaten, drunk, chewed, and savored, that, that is digested, or anything else internal within oneself that is fire, fiery, and sustained. This is called the internal fire property. Both the internal, prop, in, internal property and external fire property are simply the fire property. So the, the natural um, process of cellular metabolism is not something we have to understand, but it gives rise, or it can be characterized as the fire property. It creates heat. It creates the the uh, the internal energy to keep this six property person going. But again, there's nothing personal about it. We don't have to worship. Uh, again, there's entire societies that over human history and to this day worship fire, and it was a common. Um, one of the most famous discourse, the fire discourse, is related to fire worshippers. I was part of a sect, you could call, that worshipped the sun. This is when I was in my Native American, uh, I was going to say playground, and I will, but my Native American so-called studies. Uh, we, you know, we, 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 in, in yoga practice, there's the sun salutation, mm-hmm. right? We worship the sun. Again, I'm putting that down. But it's a common thing to, to worship completely ordinary elements and fabricate something about them that, they're, that they simply aren't, which is part of a six-property person. And again, the Buddha teaches us, this is how the fire property should be seen with one with right discernment. This is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. When one sees this as it has come to be now, come to be with right discernment, one becomes disenchanted with the fire property and through lack of sustenance, the fire property fades from the mind. Excuse me. And what is the wind property? It's same treatment. 
and then the Buddha says, the internal wind property is rising or falling wind. Winds in the stomach, winds in the intestines, winds that course through the body, in and out breathing. Notice how the Buddha is characterizing this most important and exalted in and out breathing along with internal winds, if you will. Or anything else internal within oneself that is wind, windy and sustained is called the internal wind property. Both the internal and external wind property are simply wind property. So what is significant here? A lot of it, but also just being significant with manipulating our breath or that our breath can give us some kind of information such as the, the modern practice of looking at your breath and, and extrapolating what a meaning might be. Meaning in this moment, my breath is shallow or my breath is deep or my breath is long or my breath is short. In the Satipatthana and Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddha te- doesn't teach anything like that. He just says, however your breath is, is your breath. Gentlemen, it's simply the wind property. Gentlemen, can you also take that within our practice and we're fabricating the importance of our breath? Yes. And it's, again, a, it's a healthy, useful fabrication, but it is a fabrication. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and again, it's just it's one, it's simply another aspect of a six property person. I didn't, you know, why should I be so enamored with my breath or distracted by my breath? And I shouldn't. I should just breathe. If I many people that have um, PTSD, true, and a lot of people do, and I, you, don't, you don't just have to be in a war zone or anything. Human life can give you the symptoms of PTSD. I see it all the time, especially in drug addicts and alcoholics and. Uh, people that are driven by compulsive behavior. Um, and so they, they typically have a hard time using the breath initially in meditation. And, and it's easily understood. Whenever anything happens to us that gives us fear or even extreme disappointment, we catch our breath, don't we? That's what we do. We, and so we're, we're starting. That's, a, that's an aspect of aversion. And it becomes conditioned. And so many people in the beginning of Dharma practice, even if they've never been diagnosed with some type of stress-related syndrome, have difficulty just being at peace with their breath because they keep coming up against the tension that's included in a breath. And again, how does this Dhamma help us get through that? By recognizing or teaching us to recognize it's just a breath. Even if it's a tight, constricted breath, we can take another breath and another breath and continue with Dhamma practice. And as we continue... We'll, we'll be able to address the conditioned thinking that's underlying the constricted breath. And our breaths will become much more freer. But if we start a practice recognizing that I'm having trouble breathing and be focused just on that, we'll, we'll never get past it. Because we're not treating the breath as simply the wind property. Don't take it personal. And then the Buddha says, this is how the wind property should be seen by one with right discernment. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. This is not myself. So again, if I am a person that's having t- trouble just breathing and it doesn't seem like enough, I remind myself, yes, my breath is enough. It's the wind property. And, because, and it's because I, I'm identifying with it as not being enough that I'm, I'm practicing aversion against my own breath. Remind myself, this is not me. This is not mine. And so, so for a person that is consciously or unconsciously dealing with a constricted breath, just that practice alone, that continued practice alone, is incredibly liberating. And you don't even have to understand why. It's just that you're finally 
ceasing the reaction or providing sustenance for a conflicted breath. You're, it's, it's an internal process. And now you're treating your breath simply as the wind property. When one has seen this as it has come to be with one discernment, one becomes disenchanted with the wind property or how I'm breathing. And through lack of sustenance, maintaining ignorance would be the sustenance, the wind property fades from the mind. It's simply no longer an issue. And what is the space property? The space property can be internal or external. The internal space property is anything belonging to oneself that is space, spatial, and sustained by craving. The internal space property is the holes of the ears, the nostrils, the mouth, the throat passage whereby what is eaten, drunk, consumed, and tasted gets swallowed and where it collects and whereby it is excreted from the body or anything else internal within oneself that is space, space, spatial and sustained. This is called the internal space property. Both the internal and external space property are simply the space property. And so here, even though this is in every uh, subsection, the, the fact that the Buddha doesn't get into the characteristics of the external space property and simply says both the internal and external whatever the sense base is, in this case, the space property, is simply space property. The Buddha is saying there's nothing of significance outside of yourself as far as Dharma practice is concerned. Stop looking for speculated and suppositional establishments. It's all simply occurring to this six-part property person. Everything. Excuse me. I want to be careful there. Everything in the world is not happening because of this six-property person. And I am not causing anything in the world to occur except what I directly cause. I have no metaphysical impact on the world. That's, that's a fabrication as well. I'm just experiencing this six-property person in the world. And so, again, how do I want to experience that? I can dress this six-property person up any way I want. It's up to me. And so do I want to dress it up in clothes that I can maintain? Or do I want to have an elaborate wardrobe that can't stand a smudge that I can never let anybody see? It has to be changed constantly for each occasion. And each occasion is more important than the next. Or I can shed the clothes, the misunderstanding of who and what I am, and simply be at peace with this six-property person. But it is, it is a, what is that? Oh, that's right. I, I just wonder what it is. As long as I know what it is, it's okay. <laughs> if I can live in this moment, and I can as a, as a six-property person, but fully aware of what's occurring in this moment, then I am having the most fulfilling life any human being could ever have at any point in human history. Again, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. And again, we're in a particularly uh, stressful time, but a six-property person is not stressed by it. They understand it. And we could be in an incredibly blissful time, and a six-property person is not affected or distracted by that either because that six-property person knows all of that as simply part of the human experience. This is how the space property should be seen by one with right discernment. This is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am, this is not myself. When one sees this as it has come to be, with right discernment, one becomes disenchanted with the space property and through lack of sustenance. 
the space property fades from the mind. Now again, just remind you about the setting. The Buddha is teaching Pukasati this. He's teaching him to be disenchanted with the things that he's been enchanted about up until this point. And what is the consciousness property? Consciousness, consciousness free of fabrication remains pure and bright. What is perceived by consciousness? One perceives pleasure, one perceives pain. One perceives neither pleasure nor pain. That's all. That's all that a human being can perceive, but there's an infinite number of variations on that theme. Independence on sensory contact that is to be felt as pleasure, there arises a feeling of pleasure. Independence on sensory... My, I'm, now I'm using my, sense, my senses. I become dependent on using my senses for pleasure rather than understanding. And so now I'm living my life chasing after whatever this now immature, ignorant human being decides is pleasurable. And that's different for everyone. When I was younger, for me, it was really cheap vodka and as much as I could get, but that was pleasurable to me. To drink as much vodka as I could, puke on my shoes and pass out on the floor was the most pleasurable thing I could decide for me. That's not really a reasonable thing for a human being to decide is pleasurable, isn't it? But I did. And I know thousands and thousands of people like that. And that was my thing. We all do it with something, don't we? We all engage in sensual pleasure and seeking sensual pleasure for the reason because it gives us sensual pleasure. And it lacks understanding. One perceives, I am, I am feeling, I am sensing a feeling of pleasure. If my focus is focused on pleasure, I'll find it. And it will continue to be a distraction. Independence on sensory conduct that is, that is to be felt as pain, there arises a feeling of pain. One perceives, I am, I am sensing a feeling of pain. I'm taking it personal. And now in dependence on sensory conduct that is to be felt as neither pleasure nor pain, there arises a feeling of neither pleasure nor pain. A general ambiguity about your life. Most people perceive that as boredom and some people cannot tolerate it for a moment. It is the defining characteristic in jhana meditation initially that calls to rise the other hindrances. In other words, doubt or uncertainty, etc., etc. Because in this moment, I can't possibly tolerate just being just thinking about my breath over and over again. And so we have this experience of it has to end. When is five minutes over or 20, whatever we decide? When is that bald guy got to shut up and get me out of meditation? When, when, when? Because I'm bored, I can't stand just sitting quietly. Think about this for a moment. How could it be that any human adult, an adult, not talking about a child, can't sit for five minutes or 20 minutes? Just sit. Forget about meditating. Just sit quietly without having anything going on. Without having checking their Twitter account or the radio or music or anything. Or even not being engaged in the constant internal story. And we can't do it. One would think, I would think, that the easiest thing for a human being to do would be to just sit quietly by themselves. But we can't do it. I couldn't do it. A great portion of my life was led with constant noise. Even when I had a, a house of my own that I could keep quiet, it wasn't. I either had news playing in the background or music playing. Always. Or the radio. 
And it really wasn't until I came to this Dhamma practice that I started even looking at that, at the distractions that I built into my life because I couldn't stand being bored. And now I live a life that, is, that could be characterized as excruciatingly boring, except to me. It's quite meaningful. And again, nobody else could live this life or should live this life. This is my life. This is how I live it. It's, it should not be an example for anybody, meaning the specifics of my life. But I would hope that my Dhamma practice is a useful example for other people. That's wisdom married with compassion. And we know as wise Dhamma practitioners that we really have to walk the walk if we're going to talk the talk, especially to ourselves, especially to ourselves. This is what the Buddha is really teaching Pukasaki. The Buddha says, through refined mindfulness, one understands that with a cessation of that very sensory contact, the feeling of pleasure has arisen independently of that contact. Now it's just pure pleasure. And it might be the same pleasure that I grasped, that I craved for and grasped after before, but now it is not feeding my ego. It's not feeding the sixth sense base. It's, six, it's simply the sixth sense base having a feeling. <clears throat> what is to be felt as pleasure ceases. It is still. What is the Buddha saying? So I had a wonderful piece of chocolate cake or I had a glass of vodka but I'm satisfied with it. I'm not compulsed to the next moment. I'm not distracted into avoiding the boredom of satisfaction in this moment. I've had a wonderful, pleasurable experience and it's enough. Now I can come back to another moment in my life. How do you describe that? How is that moment described when it's not doing something, when it's not engaged? Described as calm. So that human life that right now is calm because there's nothing needed or nothing wanted is the essence of an awakened human life. And that calm is taken out into life without grasping after or clinging to anything in the world because I understand I'm just this six-property person. And I've come to these wise discriminations through Dhamma practice. Not because somebody said I should do it. An awakened human being said it'd be a good idea, but even Siddhartha never said you should do something except in the Metta Sutta. We should do this through understanding. The Buddha says then through refined mindfulness, one understands that with a cessation of that very sensory contact, the feeling of pain has arisen independent of that contact. So I'm a wide awake, fully mature human being. And guess what? There is still pain. There's still disappointing moments, but they don't, one doesn't lead to the next. And there's nothing attached to the disappointment. It's just seen as, yeah, this is what this is. This is what's occurring to this six property person. And now I am so glad to know that. That there's nothing I can do or anybody else can do that can affect this this six property person unless I choose. And I'm not talking about um, getting caught in war. I'm just using it as an extreme example. So I'm on the ground now in Kiev. How what am I? How am I attending to the quality of mind now that I know that a bomb might land on me at every moment? In exactly the same way, hopefully, 
But it doesn't mean that I'm going to look for a bomb shelter when I hear the air raid sirens. That's not eye-making. That's a practical way of living in the world. But you also understand that this may be it. And so what becomes most important in that moment to the wise Dhamma practitioner when the air raid siren goes off and you know you're not going to make it into the, into the shelter? What would that thought be? It's something we should consider because it's gonna whether it's a it's it's wartime or old age or something else it takes us. The bomb's gonna land on us. What should the quality of our mind be, and what would be the difference if it's someone who says you got two years to live, or the person that knows they have ten minutes to live before the bomb hits? A calm and peaceful mind, even though that mind is very aware of what's occurring, and might take steps to avoid getting blasted but it will take those steps with calm understanding that this is not happening to me. It's as a consequence of living in this world. These things happen. What is to be felt as pain ceases? It is stilled. Through refined mindfulness, one understands that with the cessation of that very sensory conduct, the feeling of neither pleasure nor pain has arisen independent of that contact. So there's still going to be feelings of ambiguity but we'll be at peace with it. What is to be felt as neither neither pleasure nor pain or neither pleasure nor pain ceases. It is still. It's no longer a consideration. I don't need the TV playing or music playing or I don't need to be constantly checking um, my phone and my Facebook. Please read uh, Stolen Focus by Johann Hari. (laughs) It's a great... Uh, it's, it's not Dhamma, it's not about the Dhamma, but it really is a great book about how, as a society, we have so grasped after the constant distraction of social media and other aspects of that. Then the Buddha says, as a metaphor, just as when two sticks are brought together and agitated, heat and fire are born, dependent on that contact and agitation. Again, just holding two sticks in the air is not going to do anything and not going to give you warmth. But if you do it, bring them together and do it hard enough, you're going to create fire. When the sticks are separated and the agitation ceases, heat subsides and the fire is extinguished. In the same manner, an agitated mind, lacking concentration, lacking jhana, independence on contact, getting out into the world in, a, in the same manner, a, a mind that is grasping after passion, independence on contact will now feel feelings of pleasure or feelings of pain or feelings of neither pleasure nor pain. It's, it's arbitrary, it's chaotic what this being can now feel because it doesn't have control of its own mind. A wise Dharma practitioner understands that, that with the cessation of, in parentheses, self-referential sensory contact, feelings of pleasure or pain or neither pleasure nor pain are still. The wise Dharma practitioner understands that. That with the cessation of sensory contact, What does the Buddha say? He's not saying go live in a cave and never come in contact with the world or stop using your your senses at all. In this contact, using our senses rooted in ignorance is always going to cause pain and distraction and stress and suffering. But within the framework, senses properly applied brings awakening, allows us to have this human life from a mature, fully awakened point of view. Now, the Buddha says, There remains only a mind established in equanimity, luminous, pure, supple, and spacious. Just as if a skillful goldsmith would take raw gold and through skillful effort transform this raw gold 
into a refined and flawless ornament, malleable and luminous. The gold would now suit the goldsmith's pur- purpose. In the same manner, one whose mind is established in equanimity, I like the, the connection to, to pure gold, it, it really makes the point. A mind established in equanimity, luminous, pure, supple, and spacious, knows that, in, in quotes, if I were to direct my thinking towards non-physical dimensions of infinite consciousness or infinite space or infinite not- emptiness or nothingness or the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception, I would know these as a fabrication. So again, d- even during the Buddhist time as today, the Buddha is saying, anytime you start speculating yourself out of your mind and out of your body, stop. It's a fabrication. Any external fabricate, any external establishment is a fabrication. Then the Buddha says, a wise Dharma practitioner does not fabricate or mentally construct for the sake of self-establishment in this physical realm or any non-physical realm. Fabrications abandoned, this one is now is not sustained through craving. This one is released from clinging to anything in the world. This one is no longer agitated. Their mind is calm and well concentrated. This one knows their mind is calm and well concentrated. We have the direct experience. This one knows birth is now ended. A life well integrated with the Eightfold Path has been lived. My task is complete. There is nothing further for this world. This is what the Buddha said upon his awakening. And so what is he saying? Birth is now ended. He's not talking about physical birth or any future birth. He's talking about now in this awakened quality of mind, there is no possibility to give birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. That type of birth is ended. That task is done. There is nothing further for me in this world. There's nothing for me to attach. That's what this line means. Almost always misunderstood and, and a lot of embellishment made to this one simple line. There's nothing further for this world. That's liberation. Think about that. Just think about having that quality of mind, knowing moment by moment, there's nothing further for me in this world. There's nothing in this that I need to extract from this world anymore. I'm a full and complete six-property person. There's nothing further for me in the world. That's true liberation and freedom, isn't it? And then each and every moment, because of lack of attachment and lack of eye-making, no matter what I'm engaged with is meaningful. Because I don't have any aversion to what's occurring, whether it's a person, a thing, an object, an occurrence. There's no aversion. So if I find myself in Kiev or on Miami Beach, which could almost be the same sometimes, <laughs> the feeling is the same. Now let me put maybe the better, the mental quality is the same. The, the visceral feeling might be different knowing that I'm on a, a calm beach in Miami or a war zone in Ukraine, but I won't lose my mind over either one of those. And that's the point. And it's the point of a human life because Siddhartha tells us, as a consequence of having a human life, you might be in Ukraine when Putin starts a war. There is Dukkha, is the resolution to that. Not why, not we should get rid of crazy people, we need to legislate this and legislate that. The Buddha figured out why it's happening and he's teaching us why is this happening now. Why does greed, aversion, and deluded thinking manifest in so many different ways that life seems chaotic? It's because it is. But now, there is nothing further for me in this world. It has nothing to do with me. 
and I can attend to it properly. Friend Pukasati, when sensing a feeling of pleasure, understand it as impersonal and so impermanent. Understanding thus, craving and clinging vanish. Likewise, when sensing a feeling of pain or sensing a feeling of neither pleasure nor pain, boredom, understand these feelings as impersonal and so impermanent. It's an interesting connection. Seeing something as impersonal is also seeing it as impermanent. It's personalizing things that we try to trick ourselves into, into applying permanence where there can, cannot be, including this view of myself. And once I have a fabricated view of myself, it's, a, it's the permanent view, isn't it? It's the view that I carry from one moment to the next moment to the next moment. The Buddha, the, the Buddha would call that, and we call it, the burden of self, maintaining that fabricated view as opposed to the six-property person who has nothing further in the world. Understanding brings the awareness that pleasure, pain, and neither pleasure nor pain are impersonal and so impermanent and are not craved after or, cling, or clung to. When feeling pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, a wise Dharma practitioner remains disjoined from these feelings. This one understands feelings in the body as limited to the body. So no matter how wonderful this feeling is, I can't take it into the next moment or the next life. This one understands the feeling is limited to human life or limited to human life. I can't put anything in the bank for a future life. How could I? I mean, the, 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 uh, the ancient pharaohs tried to do that and, and thousands of years after they died, people got their stuff. So their belief didn't matter at all, did it? It was just a fabrication and a pretty crowded tune. This one understands that with the ending of life and the breakup of the body, that all that is experienced and not joined to will grow cool and end right there. Just as an oil lamp burns in dependence on, on wick and oil, from the termination of oil and wick, it would be unnourished and cease. In the same manner, when one is feeling a feeling limited to the body, understanding I am sensing a feeling that is limited to this body, when one is feeling a feeling limited to a human life, one understands I am sensing a feeling limited to this human life. So why, why try to carry it into the next moment? This one understands that with the ending of life and the breakup of the body, that all that is experienced and, and not joined with will, will grow cold and end right then. So what, can, what am I joined with at the end? Nothing. What can a six-property person join itself to and make itself? Nothing except a six-property person. And when that six-property person dies, it grows cold and it ends right then. So what should I do about that? Knowledge. Now, now coming in contact with the belief that I've had, that I've lived according to the Ten Commandments or according to some virtue, that I'm going to get a reward. What do I do with that now? What does that do? Does it shatter my mind? Or if I'm understanding that through the Dhamma, does it bring liberation? Because it should, because I talked about, you better listen to me because I talked about this earlier, because now I'm at the moment of death. What's it like? Can I approach that knowing that I'm living this moment? Or can I approach it like many people do with regret? I should have done this. I should have done that. I wish I had told that person I loved them or whatever it might be. Resolve an issue or have a certain experience. Rather than understanding, the end is here. 
It's been one hell of a ride. And I can tell you, I'm almost brought to tears thinking this way. If it happens to me right now, and it might, I can honestly say that. And it's so poignant to me that it almost brings me to tears thinking about it. And I'm feeling the poignancy of my own life, of having my own life. Because I lived so much of my life insisting that I didn't want it. That it was too hard, it was too confusing. That I wasn't good enough, I wasn't tall enough, big enough, smart enough, fast enough. And life does suck that way, it really does. Life isn't worth living that way and it's not worth dying that way. But it is worth dying knowing that you lived a life, you actually had a life, even if it's just a moment in that life. Even if your realization came two seconds before the cow got you, that's worth it. That's a life well lived. And I would say in relation to the Dhamma, a life that doesn't do that is a wasted life. That's my point of view. That doesn't mean that people that don't awaken have wasted their lives. I would have if I did so. And it is that motivation, that subtle motivation, that drove me to eventually finding the Buddha's Dhamma because I was so disappointed with the way I was living my life. I couldn't stand it. Let me continue. In this manner, when one has the highest determination for understanding, for the knowledge of the arising and passing away of suffering, suffering and stress, this one has achieved the greatest noble understanding. Again, it's a long class, but I want to read it one more time because this is the point. In this manner, when one has the highest determination for understanding, for the knowledge of the arising and passing away of suffering and stress, this one has achieved the greatest noble understanding. Does anybody listening to me, anybody in the sound, hear the sound of my voice, <laughs> think that we can't understand and have knowledge of the arising and passing away of suffering? Does anybody here not think you can do that? Does anybody think it's terribly difficult to understand the arising and passing away of suffering? Yes and no, because depending on our level of conditioned thinking, it, it is experienced as quite difficult. But the actuality of it is it's, it's just a gentle and peaceful experience. The arising and passing away of suffering. When we can truly understand that, there's no reason to lose our minds ever. There can be no aversion if I understand suffering because I know it's going to cease one way or another. It's either going to cease through the next breath and it's gone or it's going to cease through the next breath and my life is gone. But either way, it's impermanent. And either way, it's not me, it's not mine, it's not what I am unless I attach myself to it, unless I insist that in this moment this needs to be different or I need to be different. I need to have 20-20 vision again or whatever. I need to walk without a walker. My life sucks because i got to drag my ass around. That's nonsense. And again, I come back to how I really feel about my life, dragging my ass around, half, being able to only see half of what's out there. It is the most incredible experience I could imagine because this moment, again, it almost brings me to tears, the poignancy of this moment. It's just remarkable to me. And even more remarkable, I think I'm losing my mind a little bit, really, just thinking about who and what I am at 66 years old, sitting in this little town in New Jersey, talking to you folks. You know, I could stand up and start, if I could stand up, shout, the end is near, the end is near, <laughs> and be happy about it, because I know. And you should too. The petty crap that we all, again, just excuse me to get out of my dumb mind for a moment. The petty crap that we all get ourselves caught up in 
It's just that. It's not me. It's not mine. It's not what I am. It's not a six property person. The big car the, or the, you know, the, the trophy spouse or whatever it might be, whatever condition we're putting on the quality of our mind is the condition we're putting on the quality of our mind. It's to be recognized and abandoned because it's not me. It's not mine. It's not what I am. The Buddha says, this Dharma practitioner has gained release <clears throat> from all views ignorant of four noble truths. Their mind, their mind, my mind, has established right view, now resting on the pure truth. This view will no longer fluctuate due to distraction. This one knows whatever is deceptive and knows whatever is deceptive and remains free from associating with deception or those deceived. This Dharma practitioner has established within themselves the highest determination for truth. This is the foremost on binding from wrong views and is the highest noble truth. Then the Buddha says, formerly, while still ignorant of four noble truths, he's talking about himself, this Dharma practitioner foolishly craved after mental acquisitions and created self-identities clinging to these mental acquisitions. This Dharma practitioner has completely abandoned them. Now he says, through the Eightfold Path, this one, again talking about himself, has cut fabrications off at the root of ignorance. Like the stump of a palmyra tree now deprived of the conditions of sustenance, fabrication will no longer arise. Likewise, when still ignorant of four noble truths, this Dharma practitioner foolishly was driven by desire and self-infatuation, by ill will and hatred, by delusion and ignorance, and craved self-identities, notice the plural there, clinging to these unskillful qualities, now, this Dharma practitioner has completely abandoned all those fabricated identities. And he did it how? Through the Eightfold Path, this one has cut fabrications off at the root of ignorance. Excuse me. Like the stump of a palmyra tree, now deprived of the conditions of sustenance, fabrications will no longer arise. To guarantee, folks, if we cut it all off at the root of ignorance, every fabricated view they will no longer arise. This Dharma practitioner has established the highest determination for calm, for the calming of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, for the calming of the three defilements. This one has established the highest noble calm. The highest noble calm. So that, that line hit me like a ton of bricks because I used to qualify and quantify my Dharma practice, really was just a meditation practice, of what I got out of the practice, meaning there should be some kind of knowledge or something, some plane of existence I should travel to. But it was never for calm. But once I started not noting that I was practicing for calm, I started looking for calm. And then I started recognizing, wait a minute, my mind's a little calmer than it was. And I've asked every one of you at one time or another, and you've all said the same thing. How's, it, how's, it, how's your Dharma practice going? Or how's your meditation practice? And you'll all describe it in this exactly the same way. It's developing calm in a moment where there might not have been. You're recognizing this in yourself. And the reason why I keep coming back to it and the Buddha emphasizes it is because it's important. So you become rightly self-awakened, not rightly awakened by me telling you what you are, following just me. We follow an eightfold path as the Buddha did. This Dharma practitioner understands where, through wise restraint, the point of the structured study, 
The currents of speculation and supposition do not flow. I no longer have to guess about where I'm going or desire about where I'm going. This one is known as a sage of peace. With reference to what I am saying to you, all of the following speculation, all of the following is speculation and supposition. Notice how most religions and philosophical doctrines and most of modern, modern Buddhism seeks to answer just these questions. Speculation and supposition. The speculation and supposition that I am, that I am this, that I will be, that I will not be, that I will have this form, that I will not have this form, that I will have psychic powers, that I will not have psychic powers. Again, the Buddha is um, dismissing what is common today and during his time, that somehow awakening is described as having non-human characteristics, something that aren't, aren't part of the six-property person. And that was taught as, excuse me, as the carrot for almost every religious discipline, even during the Buddhist time. Remember his studies with Alara Kalama and Udeka Ramaputta was a carrot that, that you'll gain something in the future, whether it's in the next moment or a next life, uh, something that will give you power over others. And the Buddha is saying, it's all I making. He says, speculation and supposition are diseases, a cancer, an arrow. By abandoning all speculation and supposition, this Dharma practitioner is known as a sage of peace. A sage of peace is no longer agitated, is no longer distracted or agitated by birth, aging, sickness, and death, by sorrow, regret, greed, aversion, or deluded thinking. With no distraction or agitation, what would this Dharma practitioner crave for or cling to? What would you? There's nothing further for you in this world. This Dharma practitioner understands where the currents of speculation and supposition do not flow. When, through wise discernment, I'm sorry, through wise restraint, the currents of speculation and supposition do not flow, this one is known as the Sage of Peace. Now, friend Pukasati, you should remember my brief analysis. Usually people laugh at that point. <laughs> Now, friend Pukasati, you should remember my brief analysis of these six properties. Then the thought occurred to Venerable Pukasati. Surely the great teacher has come to me. Surely the rightly self-awakened one has come to me. Pukasati rose and bowed to the Buddha and said, I was foolish, confused, and unskilled to address you merely as a friend. Please accept my apology so that I, I may restrain myself in the future. Pukasati is immediately applying the Buddha's what the Buddha just taught him, isn't it? The Buddha replied, yes, confusion overcame you. But most importantly, you have recognized your confusion and in, in accordance with my Dhamma, have made the strong determination to end your confusion. Uh, Tom, you're still with us, I think? Yes. Uh, Tom talked about his Dhamma practice in exactly those terms, recognizing that Recognizing that he's actually accomplished this. He's brought calm into this moment where in the past there wasn't calm. If you want to talk about that, please do so, Tom. It is just this determination and discipline that one grows in the Dhamma and practices restraint in the future. It's the only direction the Buddha ever gave to practice restraint in the future. Great teacher, please accept me into the order to follow your Dhamma. And then the Buddha asked Pukasati, do you have an alms bowl and robes? And Pukasati said, no. Then the Buddha said, well, gather a bowl and robes and I will give you the going forth. Pukasati was delighted. He bowed to the Buddha and left in search of an alms bowl and robes for his ordination. While searching, this is similar to Bahia, 
to the Hiyasutta. While searching, a runaway cow trampled and killed Pukasati. But remember, he had disentangled himself from the world. A large group from the Sangha found the Buddha and told him of Pukasati's demise. They asked the Buddha what, was, what, would, what Pukasati's future state would be. So again, they're still developing the Dhamma themselves. They want to know where to go. The Buddha says, friends, never losing an opportunity to teach the Dhamma. Friends, Pukasati was wise. He practiced the Dhamma in accordance with my instruction, even if it was for, just for that brief moment. During this discourse, he practiced the Dhamma in accordance with my instruction. He never pestered me with unrelated issues. I love that line. And it's one of the reasons why we don't get into unrelated issues here. He has abandoned the five fetters of self-identification, grasping at rituals and practices, doubt and uncertainty, sensual craving and deluded thinking. He is now free of fabricated views and fabricated views will never again be subject to the suffering born of ignorance. Those that heard these words of the Buddha were delighted. The end of this short sutta. Thank you all for staying with me. Um, let's go online first. And uh, since I mentioned Tom, Tom, what do you think? Um, yeah, thanks, John. And um, hi, everyone. Um, yeah, I, I, I really like this sutta it is a long one but it's a it's got so much um so much in it and i i think the big breakthrough for me with my practice a little bit like what you were mentioning the penny dropped when i realized that the highest noble um i think the the, the phrase they used was highest noble calm so that we're training for calm we're not training for some kind of you know, mesmeric state um, yeah. that we might, speculative state that we might might um, uh, um, find. And, and it just transforms my practice because it, it, just as you said, really, I'm just repeating what you said, but I started to look for calm and, and rather than looking for something else, looking for calm and it gives so much clarity, yeah. which, which has been really, really helpful. Um, I, I had one question. Please. Um, so the, the sort of the theme is is on wise restraint. And uh, so this is a personal question, but I, hopefully it has relevance um, for other, other people. Um, I find with with wise restraint that I am quite relatively speaking good at making wise decisions, not in the heat of the moment. But I'm I really struggle with wise restraints at the points of contact and i'll just give you one sort of slightly silly example but um i really like chocolate and if there's a chocolate but i'm the kind of kid that would get an easter egg at, at easter and the whole thing would be gone within 24 hours yeah. um i'd be I'd 24 eat so hours chocolate, I'd, yeah yeah that's, you're uh, a lightweight get, 24 minutes chocolate yeah. eggs. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's not not something I'm proud of. Yeah. Um, but um, so, so I could I could just devour a chocolate bar, like more chocolate than 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 is um, probably you know wise, let's yeah. say. And so, um, what I found, and I still have that tendency a little bit today. So, if I have chocolate in the house in the fridge, um, it's, it it will not last very long because it's there and the temptation's there. And I'm like, oh, I'll just have a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. So what I do is I, I never, ever have chocolate in the house. 
And I, I still like chocolate occasionally, but I'll make sure I actually have to go out of the house, go to the local shop. And so, you know, when it's cold or I can't be really bothered to leave the house, then that sort of helps me with the wise, you know, it helps me to show some restraint. Yeah. But, but what I'm getting at here is, is that a bit of a cop-out? The sense that I'm, I'm um, rather than, I, I, I do feel a little bit weak sometimes at the point of contact, I feel weak. And yet if I make, but but I am able to make decisions in the cold light of day, which help me in terms of managing my craving and things like that. But should I, should I be practicing with having a chocolate bar in the fridge and actually say, no, Tom, you're better than that. You can eat one one little piece a day. And you're not going to, you know, devour it all in, 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 in minutes. Like, should I be practicing like that? Should I be bringing some chocolate into the house? Um, again, I'm giving a silly example, but... but no, it's a but, great but, example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We all can relate to that. Well, chocolate in and learning to be with the chocolate and show wise restraint at that point of contact? I, or should I, I be making... No, I think, you, um, I think it's a good idea, but I, you, you, you don't want to do it by yourself at first. So what I would suggest... And I'll help you out with this. When you come on retreat, bring a lot of chocolate, and I'll keep it in my room. And I, I'll just give it to you once in a while. Very kind. Very kind. I'll do that. I, I'd be happy to do that for you, Tom. Um, it, it's a, actually, it's a really great question. And so I would say if you, if you want to try that as, a, as part of your Dharma practice to bring a nice big piece of chocolate and put it on your coffee table – and as a test to see how well concentrated you are, go ahead and do it. And if you decide to eat the chocolate, enjoy it and be gentle with yourself and realize maybe I'm not ready yet to have chocolate in the house. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I still uh, help a lot of people establish sobriety. And the question always comes up. I mean, in early sobriety, I tell people, you know, for the first couple of weeks, just stay away from alcohol completely. Just, you know, you just can't be around it. But at some point, you got to live in the world. And so the question always comes, you know, what do I do when I go out with the family and they're all drinking? I said, as, as long as in your mind you don't drink, you shouldn't have a problem with it. And that's really true. You've gone past it. But, but I wouldn't tell somebody to get into that position until they're ready. Um, and so the same thing is true. You might want to, you know, you're not going to die if you eat a piece of chocolate, so you might want to try it. But you are, you're right in, in considering whether it's, you used the word weak, and it is a little weak. Um, but are you ready to have chocolate in the house? You might want to test it and see. You, and eventually you, you want to get to the place where whether or not you have chocolate in the house or not isn't an issue. You know, it's just another, it's either a sensory indulgence or um, you just enjoy it when you're sensitive to that piece of chocolate and that's it. But it is, you know, it, 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 it's for these seemingly insignificant things or issues that the Dhamma is most important because you could ignore, you could say, well, I'm meditating twice a day. What's the difference if I eat, you know, three Easter bunnies a day? I'm good because I'm meditating. I'm good because I go to John's class, but I can do all these other things. Well, I used to keep myself drunk and, and, and wasted because just the idea that I'm a good person. So it's okay. You know, I can go ahead and waste my life. Um, Whatever you do, Tom, and I know you know it, but I'm going to say it just to finish this, don't judge yourself harshly. 
know, that's the key. So even in the moment when you're grasping after another piece of chocolate, you can say, wait a minute, I'm training only for calm. I, and I'll have another yeah. piece of chocolate too. I'll have another piece of chocolate. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> it's the same reason that I don't have, uh, uh, that I don't buy ice cream because it'd be gone. Can oh, I, I do. Can I respond yeah, yeah, to yeah. that a yeah. little bit and say, um, is that good? Um, so a subtle distraction, even within the Dhamma, can be the expectation of ourselves to not crave. Mm. So be careful that you're not insisting I need to not crave the chocolate. That you need to be different than you are right. in this moment. So if you're craving chocolate, no problem. No problem. That's you're not not practicing the Dhamma if you're craving chocolate. You're just how do you do that? What's the framework is to recognize that you're craving it. Yeah. Look at how it's making me feel when I crave chocolate. No, that's a distraction. Yeah. Whether or not I choose to eat the chocolate is just further down the rabbit hole of the craving. Yeah. That was well said. That's so yeah. Yeah, it's just Thank if I recognize that I'm craving, then I'm then I'm practicing. Yeah. That is it. So, so even you know, even Hershey Kisses are are useful fodder for Dhamma practice. It's, it's just my relationship, and again, it's another good example of how individual practices. There's some people that aren't uh, don't crave chocolate. I never met one, but I'm sure there are, and so that's not an issue. But other issues are. Everybody's got. Everybody has created very subtle and powerful strategies to distract ourselves. It's the nature of ignorance to ignore itself, and that's why we do it. And so in the past, when you were eating chocolate, you were doing it to, to satisfy a need that you had, rather than, and I can tell you this, this is, I, the, the chocolate that I eat now is always meaningful and purposeful. And, and, and the ice cream, too. You don't want to see what's in my refrigerator. No, no, no. no, 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 no. That's no dumber practitioner. Look at that stuff. I do. I have. I. I. I since we're talking, I have a ritual almost every night that Bodhi, my dog, reminds me of it because he 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 engages with it. I have a a little bowl of ice cream, you know, two scoops, and uh, he always gets a little bit. I always not just the remnants. He always saves a little bit of that, and he's there. And if I don't do it every night, I get a look. So. Uh, I'm not craving and clinging to ice cream anymore, but I have one somebody, something in the house that does <laughs> keeps it going. Thank you, Tom. Mary, how are you this morning? Good morning. Um, I love what Jen said. You know, she created some distance between the proximity of the craving and the chocolate. Yeah. That it's about becoming and and whatever each of our version of chocolate is, right? It's about creating that distance so you can learn to be dispassionate, right? Because there's such a sense of pleasure in the reward of having the chocolate. 
uh, and the memory of getting the chocolate, you know, and, and all those things that are tied together, whether it's chocolate or something else for, for everyone. Um, and it's uh, slowing it all down and, and creating that distance. Like just by Jen saying down the rabbit hole, it mentally for me, put the chocolate over here and the craving over here, you yeah. know, so it, it created some mental distance yeah. just by uh, the way she described it. Um, and then the other thing is true, you know, I, I always come back to it is the middle way because the other thing could happen too in your journey is that you become self-righteous because you're not eating chocolate. Yeah. You overcame your yeah. relationship with chocolate and now, oh, I don't eat chocolate. I never do that. Or, or I always do this or that doesn't bother me anymore. And like all these things that we can hear ourselves saying that are not the middle way in it sounds can sound a little bit like uh, an aversion. You know, you wouldn't want to create an aversion to chocolate in order to solve your relationship yeah. with chocolate, right? And so restraint can manifest as aversion, avoidance, arrogance, self-righteousness, you know, in, you know, insert the name of something else we're connected to or trying not to be connected to or whatever. And it, so it really takes a lot of honesty to look at where you are in your practice, whatever the craving is or whatever the aversion is or the, the area you're trying to show restraint in, um, that can also become an extreme. And this is a practice not of extremes. And so I would imagine... Many people, according to you, John, come with different compulsions, right? I'm sure that's true for most of us, right? Yeah. And so the compulsion can be, I am really into my Dhamma practice, you know? So we just have to be honest with ourselves about where we are, be gentle, like John said, and every day try to do better. And in every point of contact, in every moment, try to do better. I mean, that's... that's my take, John. Yeah, it's a, a great you. take. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Brian, good morning. Good morning. Um, I, I guess for me, just to carry on the sugar theme, um, sugar is an addiction for me. And I, I found it easier to quit drinking alcohol than I found it to quit eating sugar. So so for me and, and Tom, like I, I don't have it in the house. Like I, like I wouldn't go to the bar and hang out. I don't have... Yeah. Right. So it, for me, like the restraint happens before I have to come in contact with it. Um, and and to, to Jen's point, like I, I can now with, with Dhamma practice, I can identify the craving and all of a sudden I'm, I'm moving towards the chocolate, like becoming right. Like you can see dependent origination yeah. happening. Yeah. All of a sudden I'm eating it and it's like, well, crap, here we go. Right. Like it's, it's, it's no longer autonomous. It's, it's just happening. Yeah, um, and you're able to so see the whole process, though. I can see the whole process, and again, like I, I have sugar problems. Like I can't physically consume that because it, at some point I become diabetic, right? Like that runs in the family; it's part of the, the genetics, and so there's this whole component. Like, yes, I love it on one level, and on the le- another level, it's 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 very very much not healthy for me. So, you know, like 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 Tom said, it, if if I have it in the house, it's gone within minutes. It's uh-huh. And, and I can sit there and, and debate with myself and watch the feelings and the craving. And at some point it just, it just becomes easier to practice without it in the house. Yeah. You know? So. 
that's my two cents on sugar today. Thank you. Thank you for putting your two cents in, my friend. Good morning, Matteo. So chocolate story also for me. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm allergic of chocolate. Oh, my condolences. Uh, like a, I mean, I wasn't like, not like, was the only thing that I really enjoyed, not like getting crazy, but I enjoyed get chocolate. And then uh, I realized it was three years ago that all my blood level got completely messed up. Uh, I feel something strange in my body. And when I went to check, I got like, Beside other two allergies to soya, that's I'm vegan. Allergy to soy is yeah. it's a nightmare. Yeah, and also chocolate. But uh, I remember my reaction when they told me that I was allergic to chocolate. It was like a big relief. I didn't think, oh damn it, oh I, I have this problem. I was like, oh yes, that's a bliss. I said, now I know that is definitely uh, harm me. So and I was like a. I, I never, never want chocolate anymore after that. And, you know, it's when I, when I think about your story and, and this, my allergy, I was thinking, oh, that is like all the trick that our mind play, you know? Because yeah. I'm not afraid of chocolate. Not that when I see I want the chocolate, or I'm thinking, oh, I don't want it because it's hard. It's just like it's completely going out of my radar after yeah. that. So it's um, it's very strange. It is. I, but once the... I, I, again, I... I've, I've had occasions to be in liquor stores or, or at a, sitting at a bar rather than just being at, at a restaurant table. And I just don't think about it. It's just not, you know, since I don't drink, it's not something that my mind is inclined towards. But again, there was a time in my life where I could not drink. So, I mean, it, the contrast is, is significant. But the only reason I was able to do that was that I changed my mind about my relationship to alcohol and drugs. I, you know, I, there's a process, though. I mean, it, again, just because we're talking about it, the, the original 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are, are a practice of diminishing eye-making. The problem is that, like the Dhamma, it's become so corrupted that it's not practiced in that way. But I was lucky. I found a guy that took me through the steps the way they were originally intended. And so I got very quickly to, just in relation to alcohol, to the cessation of eye-making in that sense. You know, I, I disassociate. I disjoined from my belief that I was a drunk and that I needed to stay drunk. And so at that point, sobriety just becomes something you do. You know, it's, alcohol is not an issue at all because it's not. I don't, I don't, just like uh, uh, chocolate is with you, Mateo, it's just not an issue. So it's just changing uh, our mind. Uh, sorry, uh, I have a question. Uh, it's related about the sutra that uh, when you said that the eye making, so what, what is the view, what is the Buddhist view, of what is your take about, uh, for example, suicide? Because I was thinking um, about that when we properties. Well, I, I, again, if I hear about it at any time, even if I don't know the people, you know, I just hear about it on the news, it, it, suicide is just, it's just sad to me. But to me, to me it's just an a lost opportunity to awaken. I don't see it any further than that because to me, the whole point of having a human life is to awaken. So if this person was so, I mean, there, there's a lot that goes around with it too. Like, you know, you could start thinking, well, how come somebody couldn't reach this person? Didn't somebody blah, 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 blah. You know, I, I can't, I don't go into that speculation either. I don't know why somebody would kill themselves. I would hope that somebody who's thinking that way would come to class and maybe not, you know, but we don't, we don't know, you know, it's a, uh, 
but morally, I don't think it's I don't think it's a moral issue one way or the other because I don't I don't believe in some kind of non-physical punishment for something we do here. You know, to me, it's just a waste of a it's a lost opportunity to awaken, and that's why it's sad to me. You know, I hear about it all the time. This, the, the, to me, the sadness is the appropriate response. I wouldn't, you know, it's not like a sadness, like, oh, how could that happen? And again, like I said before, why didn't somebody stop him? Just what happened, you know? It, it's, it's an aspect of dukkha. You know? um, there's someone online, I can't read the name. I think it might be Dev, but they're not on screen. Hey, John. Hey, it's you, Dev. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. How are you doing um, today? I'm good. Good. I, I, I'm just thinking that this might unknowingly be a sugar epic anonymous group, you know, because it really <laughs> it just speaks to all of us. And, you know, I, I've done a, um, a very large variety of recreational drugs in my life. Um, and the only, the only thing of the only thing I've ever had an issue with addiction is with sugar you know i i uh i can eat something sweet at 3 p.m one day and the next day all of a sudden at three at the same time 3 p.m i'll find myself grappling with uh you know the urge for more sugar and so it's yeah my my body just really really takes to it you know and and uh it very quickly gets out uh gets out of hand that yeah. that, that craving for it's yeah, the the the, um, the physical response to sugar is is almost exactly the the same as a physical response to alcohol. Uh, it, it, but when you when the this body starts breaking down alcohol, it breaks it down into sugars, and that's what creates much of the reaction that we get from it. And so many uh, recovered alcoholics are using. Back in the day, I recovered in 1981, and back in the day. Almost everybody in early recovery, and sometimes throughout their recovery, you'd see people coming to meetings with Hershey bars in their pocket because they became so conditioned that when they're stressed, they eat sugar because it gives them the same right. satisfaction that a drink would give. And yeah. that, that was common. It's not as common now, but it was very. Almost everybody had something, to, some sugar to eat, you know, to compensate for your alcohol, loss of alcohol. Uh, it, there's a. Um... I don't know what uh, there, there's a thought that that occurred to me about that uh, of what Tom was talking about, you know, having a piece of chocolate like present um, that that experience that experiences both a craving for pleasure and an aversion to uh, not eating that chocolate. There's like this combination of things going on. You're both. You both don't you, you don't want to deal with the the um, the uh, irritation, the uncomfortableness of not going for that piece of chocolate on the one hand, you know, which is that you're it's like you feel like that's what's going to happen if you don't eat that chocolate. And on the other hand, if you do eat the chocolate, then you're rewarded with the pleasure of eating that chocolate. Yeah. yeah. So it's very. Uh, and, and you get this very yeah. That's sensory. Well, and, and That's the, sensory. the 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 reinforcement of your of a horrible self image too. That mm-hmm. I, I was married to a compulsive overeater, and it was <clears throat> shocking to me. Once, and, and she, her addiction reemerged during our marriage, 
and I it was exactly that she did the same things I did with bottles. She did it with 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 heads of lettuce, literally hiding stuff behind um, you know couches and chairs and stuff just so it's ready. She would eat. Um, and she didn't even know it. I had to point this out to her. She would eat huge, gigantic bowls of salad. I mean, a full heads of lettuce with all kinds of stuff on it. And because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't chocolate, it wasn't sugary food, she thought it was okay. And Was, was, was she a rabbit by any chance? Was she where what? Was she a, was she a rabbit? rabbit? No. I mean, it really was, it was <laughs> astonishing. But um, the... the Addiction is addiction, you know, and it's still exactly the same. Her embarrassment by, again, she caused it to hide, her, hide it from me. Um, her recovery was very similar to mine and what she had to do and, and understand about herself. But again, it's a, the, the, the 12 steps is a, it would be a good introduction for um, an alcoholic if they were interested also in Dharma practice because it really gets right to the essence of eye making. And I, I don't want to describe the entire 12 steps, but... And that's what it was designed for. It's not used that way anymore today. Thank you, Dave. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, John. I'm good today. Thank you, Dave. Good morning, John. I feel like I've said enough, so thank you, John. Yeah, you say a lot. <laughs> good morning, Rom. Rom's got good something morning. for us. Uh, this is a really fundamental and, and complete teaching, and uh, there's nothing to add to it. Uh, but I love the uh, discussion, both in the teacher training and and. Uh, in the sangha now, um, yeah. I'm I'm definitely good for today. <laughs> Thank you, Ram. Yeah, I am too. Uh, we really we're so fortunate to have what we've all developed here in this well informed and well focused sangha, and we can do the things that you know this Uncle Sid suggested. All right, we'll finish with uh, with Meta uh, as we always do, the Karaniya Meta Sutta as restored by. Amaravati Monastery. The Buddha's words. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for really a wonderful class today. Thank you. Peace, everyone. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. 
If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.